You are listening to WERU's show, Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I am Steve Wessler, host of Change Agents, Interviews with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. My guests are Zach Hyden and Carol Garvin. Zach is the Chief Counsel at the ACLU of Maine, and Carol was the legal director. The ACLU, both nationally and in Maine, strives to protect and expand civil rights. We will be talking about the ACLU's work and upcoming challenges. Uh, Zach and Carol, welcome to Change Agents. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, well, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, Zach, could you give a uh, a brief history of the American Civil Liberties Union? I think a lot of people will be very surprised about how long it's been in existence. Yeah, the ACLU recently celebrated its 100th anniversary. We're now into our 101st year. And uh, we were founded as an organization, as the National Civil Liberties Bureau first, and then changed to the American Civil Liberties Union uh, in the early 1920s, at a time when <clears throat> dissent in this country, criticizing the government, uh, criticizing the economic structures, criticizing decisions about whether or not to go to war, could land somebody in prison. Uh, those were criminalized, and those criminal laws had been upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court as constitutional. So what really was the the original motivation for the people that founded the ACLU was the idea that the government should not be able to punish people for their ideas or the things that they say, and that criticizing the government and government policies is a vital part of living in a democracy. And really all the work that we've done as an organization since then, uh, fighting for criminal justice rights, fighting against discrimination against people of color and LGBT Americans and women, all has its origins in that original idea, right? We don't just do First Amendment work anymore, but it's still the idea that in a democracy, people get to criticize the government and they get to come together to change government practices. Thank you. I don't know why it just came into my my head that uh, in sometime in the um, the early 1930s, my father, who was born in Manhattan, uh, was walking in a protest. I, I really don't know what it was, and um, they got attacked by people, and he went. Um, he went to the American Civil Liberties Union and, and they helped. And I think he, uh, maybe someday I could find uh, some little piece of paper that says he was a, a member. Um, uh, um, Carol, could you describe uh, what you do at uh, the ACLU of Maine? And I think as we go through, through. We may say, just so everybody knows, that I think every state has a um, ACLU, am I correct? Yeah, I think that's right. I think every, I think there's 51 a state in, um, as well as I think Puerto Rico has an affiliate. Is that right, Zach? 
Yeah, in DC, there's one in DC as well. DC, okay. Yeah, the Dakotas, I think, share one. Um, So, but California has three. So it shakes out about roughly uh, one per state. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Carol, what uh, what are your responsibilities? So I am new to this role. So um, I have been with the ACLU and the legal director um, for about three months now. Uh, And yeah, I'm just so excited to be to be here. Um, so basically, you know, we have a, a small legal department. The main is um, with the three lawyers, Zach and I, and um, and then we have a legal fellow who's wonderful. And um, so my role is really, um, you know, working with those other two lawyers to figure out both what our priorities are in terms of what legal cases we want to pursue, um, doing investigations when we're considering legal action. Um, and then, you know, helping organize and work on the cases. So, um, you know, figuring out who will handle what on um, uh, a, a new case that we're looking at or, you know, drafting discovery, any any part of litigation, um, drafting, you know, drafting briefs and um, handling court conferences and, and all of those kinds of things. So that it's really, you know, it's in a lot of ways traditional legal work in the sense of we're in court where, you know, we're going to um, just to, uh, oral arguments and things like that, but um, but also kind of stepping back at a lot of priority setting. And so I I understand that you and Zach and maybe your fellow are going to court, um, but there are other lawyers that uh, that joined. Who are they? Uh, yes. Yeah, so both we as the ACLU of Maine, you know, we're we're pretty small. We have just the three of us. So so we often cooperate with um, outside counsel in a lot of our cases. And then we also have within the ACLU um, two other lawyers who focus on policy work. Um, So those are our policy counsel. And and so while we're kind of the litigation court lawyers, there's also um, a branch that focuses on legislative advocacy work. Um, And and so we work together with them as much as we can. And uh, do the people who, the lawyers who come in and um, uh, take a case or part of a case, are, are they paid for that? So generally what we have done, and Zach can, can certainly jump in because he's been with the ACLU much longer than me, but you know, usually what we do is we, we cooperate with them. So we're co-counsel on the case with those lawyers. Um, and then if we are able to get attorney fees, then often they have donated the, the portion of those fees to the ACLU as a donation just to support our other work. Um, so that's often what has happened in the past. Yeah, and just to build on that, I think, you know, as you know, Steve, from legal practice, there is a a rule where lawyers are supposed to perform some amount of pro bono work, work that is in the public interest, uh, that is done particularly for the benefit of people who are low income. And I think a lot of the lawyers who work with us on cases see that as a way of fulfilling that legal obligation that lawyers in this profession, whatever you do as your day job have, not all of our clients are low income, but most of them are, almost all of them, people that are in prison or people who have been denied medical care in some ways or people who have been victims of discrimination. So that's often, uh, you know, what I think one of the motivating factors for private lawyers who you know, agree to work with us on cases. And we wouldn't be able, as an organization, wouldn't be able to do, you know, even a tenth of of what needs to get done without those private lawyers who volunteer so much of their time and energy and expertise. And, um, Zach, we talked about 
uh, I think having the same uh, responses from um, uh, talking to lawyers in uh, often large law firms who have taken a pro bono case, whether it's from the ACLU or from some other way, where um, they will say this was the most fulfilling uh, part of my my career. Yeah, I hope that is the experience of, of the lawyers. I think that is the experience of many of the lawyers that work with us on cases. And um, we and our clients are just so grateful because people are busy. You know, legal practice, as you well know, private lawyers are very busy. There's a lot of demands on their time and their firms and their and for people to take time away from that to help out with a cause where they're not going to get paid for it. Uh, they, they will get a lot of gratitude from us about it. But, but uh, mostly what I think they get out of it is that feeling of, of fulfillment that they're, they're working to improve the lives of somebody who's uh, really having a difficult time. Yeah. Just to jump in, I, you know, I'm just thinking of the cases we have right now. And I think almost every single case we're working on now you know, is not just us. We're working with other private firms, sometimes multiple in a really big case. We'll sometimes have, you know, a, a main firm and a, and a really large, you know, out-of-state firm. Um, and it's incredible how much it, I think it just improves the work we can do um, and, and our capacity to do that. And um, and then, you know, also is a great opportunity, I think, for, um, for sometimes lawyers from a uh, places where they may not have gotten these kinds of experiences to work on a civil rights case. Sometimes early in their career, they're, you know, doing an oral argument on a case. And I think that can sometimes have a big impact on their future career too. Thank you. Uh, you are listening to Change Agents on WERU-FM. I'm Steve Wester, the host of Change Agents. My guests are Zach Hyden, Chief Counsel of the ACLU of Maine, and uh, her colleague, Carol Garvin, who's the legal director uh, the ACLU, both nationally and in Maine, strives to protect and expand civil rights. We are talking about the ACLU's current work and upcoming challenges. Uh, but actually, I want to uh, take a step back um, and start with you, Carol. Well, when did you first begin advocating? Um, I've asked this question to many, if not all, of the people that have been on my show and it's been variations from uh, up as low as five until, you know, to, you know, to mid-career, so. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think um, the first time I remember really taking sort of an advocacy position was fifth grade. And I um, remember we had a, I guess a unit on um, climate change. It was, you know, this is in the 90s, but there was research on <laughs> global warming at the time. And so um, I got really interested in it and kind of just thought this is a chance to, <laughs> to go for it. So I started a club called the Environmental Club um, and started recruiting people in my fifth grade class. And we raised money to plant a tree on campus on the school grounds. Um, and then I started a drive for everyone to sign up to get their junk mail canceled um, and have people commit to doing recycling at their houses. So, um, so yeah, I think that was the, my early sort of advocate <laughs> role um, at the time. And then that, that really, you know, snowballed into doing a lot more advocacy work when I was later in high school and in college. And uh, can you think back as to um, where that may have come from? I mean, sometimes it's, 
Um, it's from parents. It's from some particular person. And other times, it's just all you. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I I remember just feeling like when I learned about this thing called climate change, but I don't even know that they used that term at the time. But um, I was just I just thought this we've got to do something. And and there was you know hard to figure out exactly what the role of a fifth grader is. But <laughs> but I I don't remember anyone saying you should do this. Um, you know, I mean, my my family are all teachers, so there was a general sort of public service orientation. But um, but that particular thing, I, I think just somehow something inside me made me feel like I've got to do this. And you uh, continued in college? Um, yeah, I went I sort of as time went on, I did a lot more um, work more in the civil rights um, area. So I, I ended up interning at the ACLU of Philadelphia, um, the Pennsylvania chapter, which is where I grew up when I was in high school um, and watched the lawyers there doing um, one of the early sort of um, police bias traffic stop cases and, and then went on and in college did a lot of work, um, mostly affordable housing advocacy when I was um, living in Boston. And so did a lot of writing the tea and collecting um, signatures on petitions for a big um, affordable housing drive. And, and so, yeah, continue to do advocacy in different areas. And then some years later, I think um, you uh, went to graduate school and then to law school. Um, yeah. So then um, I I ended up right after college. I did Teach for America um, because I um, everyone in my family was a teacher. I thought that's what I'll do. <laughs> um, so I did that in the um, in Oakland, California, and. Um, then began to get really interested in going to law school. And so I worked um, before law school for a First Amendment lawyer and thought this is, I think this is what I want to do. So I went to Berkeley for law school. Uh, uh, yeah. Good good decision for everybody. <laughs> um, Zach, yeah, it's I, turned out well so far. Zach, I think you have a, a different trajectory. I do, but it's funny, you know, I don't, I don't think of it very often, but when Carol talked about you know, sort of engaging in advocacy in high school, um, my it was you know before my professional advocacy work. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I organized a protest against the war in Iraq, and this was the first war in Iraq, the 1990 um, war in Iraq. At the time, it was sort of a perspective war. The U.S. was debating whether to invade Iraq, uh, invade, you know, Kuwait to repel Iraq and then uh, continue on. And I organized a protest at my high school of, uh, of U.S. Uh, military action against Iraq. Um, and there were maybe maybe 12 or 15 people came uh, to protest, and then about 150 people came to counter-protest and um, accused us of being un-American and not supporting the troops and um, surrounding us. And there were news cameras, and we were interviewed. It was a big, it was a big thing, a big. Uh, but it, it was an important lesson because it taught me that it doesn't really, you know, you're not going to be judged by how many people show up for your protest, right? If you're, if you feel like you're right, and uh, it doesn't matter if you're outnumbered. Uh, also taught me the importance of like preparing ahead of time of what you're going to say to reporters at an event like that, because I had no idea what to say. <laughs> Look back at the news coverage. It wasn't, it wasn't my best news coverage. So that was a good oh. experience. <laughs> well, it, it, I, I think then you are very much in, um, in the theme that I've been seeing that, it, that there was something there that caused you to do that. Did, 
did did you have parents who were advocates? Did you have my my father went to Berkeley in the late sixties and early seventies. He wasn't I don't think you'd call him an activist, but he was certainly surrounded by uh, the anti war movement. Uh, you know, that was going on. And, and I'm sure he was participated in marches. Uh, I remember him telling me about, um, their, you know, friends were having a softball game and they got tear gassed because there had been a protest nearby and the tear gas sort of wafted over. And, um, and that, you know, that was sort of the household that I grew up in, that my parents were products of the 60s. Um, and so it wasn't, you know, we weren't an activist household, but it was certainly not like, um, anybody was allergic to the idea of, of engaging in activism or, or working on, um, for causes. Um, you know, thinking about, um, the, the first Iraq war is, seems really long ago. Um, and, uh, I was upset as you, as you were, um, from the beginning. And I had for, several years a um somehow i could it was called um i think iraq iraqi deaths and it just got clicked every time there was a non-civilian uh, being killed um, yeah i have a you know from the second iraq war um my wife and I were in New York City for the for the quite enormous march uh, and you know protests that happened there before the second invasion of Iraq in two thousand three was it two thousand two thousand two I guess it was spring of two thousand two and um, I still have a picture on my bedroom wall from that march down Fifth Avenue Fifth Avenue that uh, I look at you know, every day and think, think about that. Um, and how of all the, of all the work we do and all the things we do, um, there's, there's nothing more damaging to civil rights and civil liberties than war. Yes. Um, so, uh, either one of you can start. Uh, I'm just curious, um, what, what would an average day or week be? Um, and, and obviously it, it changes all the time, but um, either one of you will start. Zach, why don't you go? Sure, I'll start. I'm smiling at that question. I... I one of the things I love about this job that I'm not sure everybody would love is that now I've been doing it for a little over 18 years. I've been at the ACLU of Maine, and I've never had two days that are the same. There have never been two days in a row where my day looks the same, either what I'm working on or how I'm working on it. So um, I'll give you an example of a day that, um, you know, I might wake up and have a call with a colleague like Carol and maybe somebody in our national office where we're working on a First Amendment brief together. Uh, and then I might be meeting with colleagues at our office and talking about all of our projects and how they're being managed and what we're doing about them. Or maybe we're talking about 
what we're going to do in the next legislative session. Um, and then I might be talking with somebody about an ongoing case that we have, like a, a right to counsel case that's going on. Uh, and then I might be talking with people around the country who are working on indigenous justice and making plans for uh, a meeting or a conference. And the day that I've just described is yesterday, right? This, this is like, you know, an ACI and today is gonna be different. It's gonna be different issues and it's gonna be different ways of approaching these issues. I love that about this work. I could imagine that, that other people would not like that, that they would find that, um, you know, quite challenging or, or uncomfortable. Um, but for me, just wait, knowing, knowing when I wake up each day that I'm going to be doing something different than what I did yesterday, and I'm not going to necessarily know what everything is, uh, that's really exciting. Okay. Carol? Yeah. I, um, it's funny because, you know, I've been in this job three months, and so I have a very vivid <laughs> recollection of what I, what my days were like in, um, in private practice, where I did mostly employment discrimination work up until about three months ago. Um, and yes, definitely less regular. <laughs> I much more feel like with this job, I sort of have a general idea of some things that are going to happen in a day, but then I sometimes feel like I go on a ride and I'm just like, it's it's out of my control <laughs> where the day is going to end up. Um, and yeah, I think that is challenging and sometimes a little bit terrifying, but also really exciting. I found it to be just, I, I have not been bored for one second um, since I started. And yeah, I mean, I think an average day often includes a lot of um, a lot of talking with other people. I think it's a really collaborative job, um, which often law isn't. I think a lot of lawyer jobs are, are pretty solitary, um, but there's just a ton of collaboration both within our office, but then, yeah, with other ACLU affiliates, with national, with lots of other nonprofits in Maine. I mean, a lot of our cases are with other nonprofits with the, you know, the, um, so we have sort of strategy discussions that are much broader. Um, and then, yeah, there's often some solitary work with research and, and writing, which is one of the parts of the job I love. Um, so there's sometimes, you know, some 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 more solitary, I would say, more traditional lawyer work. Um, and yeah, and then there's all who knows because something will happen and derail the whole plan you thought you had for the day. So I um, think it is, yeah, it's different. So uh, for either of you, um, do you also spend time talking to people who? Um, think or believe that their civil rights have been um, compromised? Yeah, I mean, we have, um, you know, we have right on our website, if anyone feels like they've had a civil rights violation, you can see there's a um, there's an online form. And so we definitely want to hear from people if they feel like their civil rights have been violated. And we look at those, um, you know, collect all that information and look at them. Um, and especially to sort of see patterns and, and sort of systemic issues that we might be able to take up. Um, and then we follow up with people when we think there might be action that we can take, or if they have specific questions, then we'll sometimes follow up with them with phone calls or with meetings. Um, and, and that, for me, at least talking with um, clients or potential clients is, is just one of the best parts of the job in the sense of, um, you know, you're you're seeing in action what is happening in ways that you might be able to help. So, I, yeah, that's a part of the job that, that I really love. Yeah, yeah, just to build on that, I think about, you know, in terms of just our litigation work at the organization, obviously, the organization does a lot more than just bring lawsuits. But but with our litigation work, it's a rough 50-50 split. It shifts over time, but roughly 50-50 of cases that somebody contacts us and says, I think my rights are violated, or I know my rights are violated, and uh, could you help me? 
Um, we have a case we're going to be filing a brief tomorrow uh, on behalf of a reporter who has been sued for defamation by this huge organization, national organization. And the, the case, we believe, is just being brought to harass this reporter and, and his, his small organization, um, not because of any legitimate reason. It's going to you know, attack him for engaging in freedom of the press. So that was a case where we, we were like, yes, we're going to come in and help um, somebody who's, who's asked us for help. But another big case that we're spending a lot of time on has to do with the right to counsel in Maine and, and making sure that people who are accused of crimes have lawyers and that those lawyers have all the preparation and training and resources that they need to do the job. Um, and that was a case where we on our own as an organization were concerned about this system and then went out and talked to people around who are being impacted by those problems and said, we think what's happened to you and what's happening to people like you is unconstitutional. And do you want to work with us to try to address it, among other ways, through litigation? Well, I think we'll come back to, to that um, because I think that's a important and interesting um, lawsuit that you have. Uh, you are listening to Change Agents on WERU-FM. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guests are Zach Hyden, Chief Counsel of the ACLU of Maine, and her colleague, Carol Garvin, who's Legal Director. The ACLU, both nationally and in Maine, strives to protect and expand civil rights. Um, so... I, I think it would be to, to spend five, six minutes, maybe more, on on this case that you're that you're talking about. About so, are both of you involved in this? Okay. We are. It's big enough that everyone's involved. <laughs> but but Zach has been living and breathing this case for, for a long time, so I'll let him take the lead. Yeah, we're we're both involved and we have a uh, an Anahita Satuhi, our legal fellow, uh, is involved, our policy team is involved, our communications director was involved. Uh, it, it's, you know, and our, everybody in our organization is involved in this. It's one of our biggest priorities. It's one of the biggest cases we've ever brought as an organization. And we have the help of um, two outstanding law firms who are do donating a lot of time and energy and brilliance, um, Preddy Flaherty and the Goodwin Law Firm, uh, which is an, an international law firm based um, in Boston. Do, do you also um, at times go to the uh, ACLU National office to get help. We do. We do. We go to the. I feel like I go to them a lot. And the ACLU nationwide, the right to counsel is one of our priority issues, and has been since Gideon versus Wainwright. So for you know for over fifty years, Gideon versus Wainwright is the U.S. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court case that says people who are accused of crimes have the right to an attorney, and the state has an obligation to make sure that they get an attorney. And that means, you know, in the 50 plus years since Gideon, courts have said that means more than just a person with a law license, right? It means somebody who has the training and the, the skills and the resources to actually provide 
meaningful counsel, not just the right to have somebody who is technically a lawyer stand up next to you in, in court. Um, and some states don't even make sure that there's a lawyer in place. And there are parts of Maine where we're not even making sure that there's a lawyer in place for people. Um, there's long delays in people getting appointments of counsel well past where the state is obligated to provide counsel. And then for Maine, once they provide counsel, they're not supervising those lawyers and they're not training them adequately and they're not making sure that they have all the resources and support that they need to do their job to the best of their ability. So I want to I want to make sure as um, who is it that should be doing this? Is it um, judges? You know, this is one of those areas. Um, you know, there's one of my favorite um, spiritual leaders, a man named Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, once wrote, and he wrote it in regard to racism. But I think it's true with regard to the criminal justice system too. That um, some are guilty, but all are responsible. And when it comes to Thinking broadly about our justice system, we're all responsible. And then specifically, all of us who have any anything to do with the criminal justice system. That includes us as advocates. It includes criminal defense lawyers and the agency that's supposed to supervise the criminal defense lawyers. It definitely includes judges and prosecutors and elected leaders and the attorney general all of us are responsible for making sure that the justice system is really living up to its name, right? That it's really a just system. But, but uh, in that list, um, how many are, um, got, are, have been um, charged with um, your case? I mean, well, who is it? How many, of those, it? Have we, how many of those have we sued? Right. Yeah, that's I mean, it, is it good? Right. Yeah. That's is, the, that's the some are guilty uh, part of the, but all are responsible. Um, some are guilty. And in this case, so Gideon versus Wainwright, the U.S. Supreme Court said it is the state's obligation to make sure that people have their right to counsel. And in Maine, the state has assigned that responsibility to an agency, and that agency is called the Maine Commission on Indigent Legal Services, and says, okay, we, have the, we the state have this obligation. You, Maine Commission on Indigent Legal Services, handle it. Uh, and so that's who we've sued, we, because that's who the state has said they're responsible. We're going to say, okay, you're responsible. You're not meeting your responsibility, and you need to do it. You need to make sure that the Constitution is being satisfied. And are uh, is is the state um, taking a hard position, or are they looking to to try to work something out? I don't know, Carol. How would you characterize their position? I'm, I'm not exactly sure. It's hard to like. Care. I mean, it's like in our view, you know, any any defendant who doesn't isn't immediately like, yeah, you're right. We are behaving unconstitutionally, and you need to. We need to shape up. Uh, we think is an unreasonably hard position, but maybe, I don't know, Carol has a better perspective on that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, not surprisingly, they, they quickly moved to dismiss our lawsuit um, and, you know, tried to get it dismissed and also filed an objection to our motion for class certification because, you know, a, a, an important part of this case is that, um, you know, we represent a handful of, of plaintiffs, but, you know, we were seeking to represent 
everyone who is entitled to counsel. Um, and that's thousands and thousands of people in Maine. Um, so, you know, so we, we immediately were in sort of litigation battles over those two things. Um, and those have, were really early in the case still, but those have just been resolved um, recently in that we did get class status and the motion to dismiss on the Sixth Amendment claim was denied. So now we're sort of off and running. Um, but I think, you know, a time will tell sort of what direction it goes. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's certainly early in the case. But I I think we're very open and hopeful to seeing if there's ways to resolve it short of going all the way through, if that, if that ends up being possible. Um, so I, I want to move on to uh, um, a, a very, I mean, everything that is important, but it's really on uh, many people's minds. Uh, would it be fair to say that uh, that um, both in Maine but and across the country, that this is perhaps the most difficult time to be able to do this work, given the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court? I think it's I think it's a tough time. I don't uh, I think maybe not the most difficult in history, but um, but probably since I've been a lawyer, which is, you know, a little over a decade, I, I think it's the toughest time. Um, and I in terms of, um, you know, the Supreme Court, I, I think we're in for a long time to come that is not going to get much easier um, and may get harder. So I think that's been affecting a lot of our thinking about strategy. Um, and one thing that we've been thinking a lot about is just how important our state courts and our state constitution and our state statutory rights are, um, because there may be points where the federal constitution were just at a, at a dead end right now. So, okay. so can you explain um, uh, why this, this, the state uh, is important on this? Um, that uh, I think a lot of people would say, well, uh, the Supreme Court makes makes the decision uh, in in every case, ultimately. So, right, right. I think that's true. I think a lot of people think you know the Supreme Court is in charge, um, but that's not true. That's they're the final arbiter on federal constitutional rights. Um, but we have a we have a strong state constitution, and the Supreme Court is not the final um, decision maker on those rights. It's our state Supreme Court, the, the law court. And there's also um, really strong law from our Supreme Court saying that even when there's a right that's somewhat similar, like let's say the, the Sixth Amendment, there's a Sixth Amendment, you know, version in both the federal and the state constitutions, they might look, you know, somewhat similar, but the state has its own obligation and its own duty to independently interpret our state constitutional rights. And so sometimes it might decide we're going to do the same thing that the federal courts have done. But sometimes often it might decide, no, Maine has different policies, different values. You know, the origins of this right came from different places. And so we're going to interpret that differently, um, maybe more broadly or more protectively. Or if the Supreme Court turns one way um, and kind of departs from earlier precedent, maybe the main courts will not. Maybe they'll they'll um, remain with a more robust protection. Thanks. Um, and can you in a sentence or two, say what the Sixth Amendment is? Sure. The Sixth Amendment um, has a, a number of rights, but in, including the um, 
right to uh, counsel. And so that's the basis of the right that the case Zach was just talking about. Um, Zach, can you think of one specific area of of law that you are uh, concerned about, um, particularly given the um, composition of the Supreme Court, and um, and perhaps uh, for many people that the one that would jump out would be the right to abortion. Yeah, the right to abortion, I think, is on all of our minds because the U.S. Supreme Court just decided in the Dobbs case that the federal constitution does not protect that right. Uh, and that had been for 49 years, something that, that we had all believed and known to be true, that the federal constitution does in fact protect the right to privacy and the right to privacy includes the right to make decisions about whether and when to become a parent. Uh, so that is obviously something that is on all our minds and it should be, it's something that's gonna be of concern. But building on what Carol was saying, um, you know, the main constitution is a different document than the federal constitution. And, you know, every state has their own constitution and those constitutions can provide greater protection than the federal constitution provides. They can't provide less protection, but they can provide greater protection. And uh, is there an effort from uh, the ACLU of Maine or other groups to uh, try to um, get uh, more protection? Yeah, there's a lot of discussion going on about that. I believe Governor Mills yesterday or the day before uh, said that she and her office is looking at this and whether uh, there are arguments that the Maine state constitution already protects um, the right to access abortion care. That is something that we as an organization have said in court a number of times going back um, almost a decade. Uh, and believe that to be true, that there is protection in main, the main Constitution's liberty provision, its guarantee of safety, uh, its protection against discrimination on, the be, on, the, on behalf of people seeking their civil rights, uh, that all of those include the right to access abortion care and that that is protected. But so I think that is a, a conversation now that we don't have the federal Constitution to rely on that people are uh, we, you know, we have a lot of uh, very powerful statutes in Maine that protect access to abortion care, but constitutional protection is another level of protection. And uh, for either of you, um, when you when you look nationally, um, do you have a uh, uh, a number or a, a guess as to how many states would be? able to do what Maine would do, which, um, which would require a, uh, a democratic majority in, uh, in the governorship and in uh, the state legislature. Yeah, I mean, states are looking at this both in terms of changing their laws and their constitution at the ballot box. There's a, there's a ballot initiative uh, in Michigan. I think there's another one in West Virginia. And um, that's something And people, and then through the political channels of electing um, legislators and governors who are supportive of abortion rights. Uh, and then also in court, 
of asking courts in the state, state Supreme Courts, to interpret their constitutions to recognize um, a right to privacy or control over a person's decisions about pregnancy. Yeah, and just to jump in, I mean, I think we're we're sort of in uncharted territory in a lot of ways because the, you know, I think for, for many decades, um, the Supreme Court was in the business of, of expanding rights. Um, and so when it would overturn precedent, it was in favor of expanding a right that it had previously said didn't exist. And so I think this is a new world where a right that we all thought existed they've now overturned that precedent and said it doesn't exist. Um, and so we have a situation where, you know, our our constitution, which, you know, has been read to be at least as broad as the federal, well, that, you know, does that mean it's as broad as the federal constitution was interpreted to be, you know, 10 years ago, 50 years ago? Um, or does it constrict when the federal interpretation constricts? And so we certainly think um, that it's at least as broad, but should be broader than, than um, this sort of new jobs world that we're in. Uh, you are listening to Change Agents on WERU-FM. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guests are Zach Hyden, Chief Counsel of the ACLU of Maine, and uh, her colleague, Carol Garvin, who is the Legal Director. Uh, the ACLU, both nationally and in Maine, strives to protect and expand civil rights. So I... I, I think uh, in the conversation we've just been having in, in a couple of points that you are you are looking toward uh, new avenues for dealing with problems that uh, none of us hoped none of us uh, not nobody but I think for the three of us. Uh, would have to happen. Do, do you have an agenda that is, uh, and it may be not something you want to share, or it may be, but but in terms of what are the, uh, I mean, you, you've talked about some issues that are ongoing and really important, uh, right to counsel being one. Um, what else? So I think there's, you know, I, I wouldn't, I think agendas may be um, more formal than we would say for now, um, but, and it, it, it sort of changes um, on, a, on a weekly basis, what's most critical, and I think could well change depending on how um, things go this November. But I think certainly some of our priority issues um, are racial justice and uh, and then reproductive rights, I think, could well become a, a major priority issue, depending on what happens. That right now, as Zach said, we have statutory protections, but if those look like they're at risk, I think that will quickly um, become a, a you know a main area that we are actively looking at ways to expand and preserve those constitutional protections that can't change with you know an election. Um, so, but there's all kinds of issues that come up. You know, right now we're working. I was working yesterday on a um, speedy trial issues. So this is, um, you know, something that has come up, especially in the pandemic. We obviously have um, case backlogs in Maine, and this is true in many states, um, but Maine has much, much higher numbers of pending criminal cases than it did a few years ago. Um, and so looking at the speedy trial right, which is both a constitutional right, um, but in some states is also a state protection. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a new issue that hadn't been as much on our radar and that we're really actively looking at now. 
Thank you. Um, so advocates, whether uh, being a lawyer or any other kind of advocates are, um, we, we don't always prevail in court, um, in the legislature, in, in, any, in any venue. Um, for each of you, can you talk about um, a particular case that did not go well and, um, and how it affected you? And that, that could, doesn't have to be, Carol, for, for you when you were just here at uh, the ACLU of Maine. It could be before that. Yeah, I mean, two come to mind that are relatively recent um, and the recent in the terms of the very end of this most recent U.S. Supreme Court term. Um, and we've talked a little bit about the Dobbs decision, which is the Mississippi decision about abortion, where the U.S. Supreme Court um, overturned Roe versus Wade and eliminated protection for uh, access to abortion care. That was That was something we saw coming, right? That was not a surprise. Um, we knew this was a priority for the people that were deciding who was going to be sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, if, if it was, if you were surprised at that point, then we heard the oral argument uh, in December of last year when that, that case was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. It was very clear from that argument in ways that, as you know, you often can't tell from an argument. Uh, where the judges are, it was very clear where the judges were at, at that oral argument in Dobbs. And then the, and then the decision uh, drafted, the opinion was leaked months ahead of time. Um, and, then, and then the decision came out and I was still shocked. Um, it, was very, it was a very strange experience. Now, it wasn't a case that we worked on personally, but it was obviously an issue that we care a lot about and that, an issue that we've, we've worked on personally. Um, and it was just amazing to me that you know, I had this physiological response to that, that of just that just devastating feeling. And I think that was felt by many people, millions of people across the country uh, when that decision came down. It was really, it was like a physical hurt uh, of reading that, not just an abstract disappointment or I wish it had gone differently. Uh, as you're totally right, though, Steve, like we, disappointment is part of the job. Uh, losing is part of the job. And, you know, in those in those situations, I think we try to remember why we do the work and, and the value that we get out of uh, doing work that feels meaningful uh, and and separate and apart from whether whether we've achieved a result in the individual case. The other case I was thinking of was a case about religious funding. Uh, public funding of religious schools, which was an issue. It was the first case that I worked on when I started at the Maine Civil Liberties Union in 2004. And uh, it was you know long-term battle through state courts and federal courts all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court this year. And the U.S. Supreme Court finally decided that Maine's decision to not fund private religious school with taxpayer dollars was unconstitutional. Uh, and that was really disappointing um, because, you know, it means essentially that all of us with our tax dollars are now potentially going to be funding uh, 
schools that are very discriminatory, discriminatory against all sorts of people and ideas. And that's okay. They're allowed to be discriminatory, but we shouldn't have to pay for it. And that's, uh, that was a very big disappointment, the Carson versus Macon um, decision. Carol, can you th- think of um, a, a case that perhaps sticks, sticks with you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this. And yeah, I think doing, doing civil rights work, you have to get your optimism from somewhere other than winning, because it's not always, not always going to happen on a regular basis. Um, yeah, so I certainly remember, I mean, a piece that I handled, and this is when I worked um, with Jeff Young um, several years ago, and so we did a lot of um, labor work for unions. And so we challenged, um, under the, we had a First Amendment case, challenging um, the then Governor LePage's decision to remove um, a labor history mural from a building um, based on complaints that it was sort of too radical. Um, and we brought First Amendment claims, and I think from the beginning, it, we knew it was an uphill battle. There's been a lot of um, case law coming from the Supreme Court over the last couple of decades that have developed this um, government speech doctrine, but a, a you know a, a limitation on bringing First Amendment claims when the um, speech is seen as the the speech of the government. And so that was a a big defense that we knew would be raised. Um, But we felt like it was a fight we needed to fight um, for our clients. And so we fought in the district court and fought in the First Circuit and we lost. Um, It is one of those cases I I laugh because my my colleague, Jeff, you would often say like, well, we didn't win in the court of law, but we we won in the court of opinion. And that was his, you know, his way to keep going. But I think this is a case where it actually was true because the outcome, this raised awareness about this mural that had actually been in a pretty, you know, low visibility spot in a government building. And now that is, as you enter the the museum, the state main state museum, you see that mural and there's um, a lot of explanation about the history of the labor movement along with it. So I think many, many more people see it now. You know, I, I when I think of the, uh, the, the cases that I've won and ended up talking to uh, uh, my client or um, or in any number of different situations where the legal victory was secured and uh, and the person who had been um, attacked uh, still feels as awful as they did because um, Yes, they got some money. Um, yes, they won a court, and uh, they're still dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress. And um, and I I I think about those a lot, and to remind myself that it's really easy at times to say, "Great, we won," and um, and and we did, but um, but that doesn't remove the the terrible hurt. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Um, you know, I, until a few months ago, was mostly doing a lot of individual um, employment discrimination cases. And so often my clients would say, what I really want is an apology. Um, and I would say, we can we can get you a lot of things. I think we can get you money. We might be able to get some policy changes, but probably we are not going to be able to get you an apology. That is just one of the hardest things. And it's, you know, that is not what the justice system can get you. It's It's, yeah, it, there's limitations, I think, on that. Uh, 
So uh, I want to turn to, uh, and we're we're coming toward the end of of this, but um, talk about a a case that was went really well that you you maybe don't think about even every every year, but um, when you do, you you feel. Uh, Sometimes things um, come up upright, not 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 down. Either of you? Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I I think there's. Um, and think and about I, about two minutes or so. Two minutes. Okay. Uh, I handled a few years ago where we brought um, a class action on behalf of a group of people who were um, all laid off and it was an age discrimination claim under our state discrimination law. Um, And this is a theme, but our main argument was the state law should be interpreted more broadly than the federal law, the federal version of that, you know, discrimination, um, disparate impact discrimination law has been interpreted narrowly. Um, And so we laid that out and the law court ultimately agreed and and adopted a much more expansive view of of disparate impact discrimination um, under the state law. And so that's both, was very helpful in our case for our clients. There were um, hundreds of clients who've been laid off and also sets a precedent going forward for, for people bringing these kinds of cases. Thank you. That, that, that doesn't happen often. Um, <laughs> it was a good day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Zach. Yeah. I mean, there, there've been many and um, I don't, maybe I should think about them more, but I don't tend to think about, what we've done in the past very much. But one of them I do think about a lot is Portland a number of years ago decided that it wanted to ban people from standing on median strips. Uh, And this was going to have a a big impact on people who ask for spare change from their, you know, fellow residents when they're having economic hardship, but also for activists who like to stand on uh, busy median strips to hold signs so that cars will think about issues like war and climate change. And we challenged this ban in court. It was really not very popular, this case that we were bringing. Um, As you know from your time uh, at the ACLU of Maine, Steve, like sometimes the public is not enthusiastic about the work that we do. And that's not, that's okay. That's uh, not the test. But uh, we we won in court in the trial court and the city appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. And we won in the First Circuit. And uh, I think about that. I, get, I live in Portland. And when I see people holding signs out on, on the, you know, anti-war signs or anti-climate change signs um, on median strips, I think about well, that. I feel well, really good about it. And for somebody to be able to get a couple of quarters. Yeah, exactly. Maybe get yeah. through the day. Yeah. Well, thank you that for for both. Um, I guess the uh, last question is, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people about uh, what's going on politically, and and there's a lot to worry about. Um, but what is it that gives you a sense of hope in um, about uh, one minute each? I'll go while Carol's thinking is that we, you know, Carol and I um, 
did a, a small event a few weeks ago with the journalist, the writer, Rebecca Traster, brilliant um, woman uh, and friend and colleague. And, uh, and she talked a lot about this. It stuck with me, this idea of, the, of struggles, past struggles that people engaged in, knowing that they were not going to see it to the end. And, and accepting that and, and still feeling every day that they had something to contribute to the struggle to make the world more just and more fair uh, and not, but, but knowing that they, that, you know, maybe their children would live to see it, maybe their grandchildren. Uh, and that I'd sort of helped as a reset, the idea that these short, you know, I love a short term win, but that, that this is a long, a long game and that we just get to play a part in it. Yeah, I think I think a lot about about that too because um, yeah, one of the things that we talked about in that event was just the idea that um, you may fight your whole life and things will not be better, but if you hadn't fought, they would be worse. And so there's you know it, there's a sort of um, constant you just fight because you have to. And I you know I think that talking with I have two little girls and I talk with them a lot about what I do for work because I think they need to know and. Um, and just talking with them, for example, about the, we talked about the Dobbs opinion um, because I felt like they needed to understand what was happening. And it um, immediately, they got it and they understood like this matters for me. And so I think just having those kinds of conversations makes me realize I, I have to do this work. Well, thank you both for what you do. It's incredibly important and, and, uh, and I'm so glad that the ACLU of Maine is there and the two of you are doing the great work you do. Uh, you've been listening to Change Agents on WERU-FM at 89.9 uh, or on the World Wide Web, uh, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents, uh, my guests today have been Zach Hyden and Carol Garvin. Both are senior lawyers at the ACLU of Maine. We have discussed a number of uh, significant and serious issues affecting uh, people in Maine relating to uh, their constitutional rights under the U.S. Constitution or the Maine Constitution. Um, and thank you again both for uh, the work the incredibly important work you do.